What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. In the two months since Israel declared war against Hamas, nearly 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. The United States stands with Israel. We will not ever fail to have their back. And while President Biden and other world leaders have expressed their unwavering support for Israel, there's starting to be a subtle shift in how they're talking about this war. Last week, Biden warned that Israel is beginning to lose support around the world. I think that uh, we have made it clear to the Israelis and they're aware that the, independent, the, the safety of innocent Palestinians is still of great concern. And so the actions they're taking must be consistent with attempting to do everything possible to prevent innocent Palestinian civilians from being, being hurt, murdered, killed, lost, etc. But as the death toll in Gaza continues to climb, will these new calls for restraint have any effect? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your host, Martine Powers, and it's Tuesday, December 19th. Today, I'm talking with my colleague, Louisa Loveluck, who's been covering the war in Gaza. We'll hear from her about the latest on the continuing humanitarian crisis and the growing criticism that Israel has gone too far. So, Louisa, what is your sense of what it is like on the ground in Gaza, and how have things been unfolding there? In the sense we get from all our reporting is that the situation for civilians in Gaza right now is truly hellish. You have roughly two million people who have been displaced, tens of thousands of wounded, and there really is no safe place to go. And what is it like for people who are trying to survive there? Like, what are they doing? Conditions for people in Gaza right now are incredibly hard. The World Food Programme said that almost half of households are going to bed hungry at night. And that's because on top of the bombing, on top of the displacement, there just isn't enough food there at the moment. People are walking hours a day to find food, what little food there is, and bring it home, sometimes finding that that there isn't any and having to walk all that way back and to tell houses which are containing dozens of people at the moment that there won't be anything that night. And then we've heard so much about the situation with hospitals in Gaza. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, the health network in Gaza is effectively under attack. Scores of medical facilities have been attacked, damaged, or caught in the middle of fighting. There have been attacks on medical workers. There have been attacks on ambulances. And in northern Gaza, where the worst of the fighting has taken place, there are very few open medical facilities, which means that if you get injured in the fighting, or even if if something else happens to you, if you have a long-term case like cancer, like diabetes, you essentially can't get treatment anymore. 
And is any of that going to change in the the near-term future, either the issue with widespread hunger or the lack of any real functioning medical facilities? In the absence of a ceasefire, it's very hard to see how this will change. The Americans, the Biden administration has pushed the Israelis very hard on letting more aid into Gaza. And there are humanitarian deliveries entering daily or almost daily. But this was a population that was dependent on aid even before the war. So in the context of a massive humanitarian crisis where the needs are stratospheric compared to what they were in peacetime, it's not even touching the sides. Louisa, I want to take a second to talk about numbers here. What is the latest that you've heard about how many Palestinians have died in Gaza? The latest numbers from the Gaza Health Ministry say that almost 20,000 people have died in Gaza as of today. You know, here in the U.S., I feel like I've seen a lot of pushback about those numbers of casualties. I mean, frankly, even walking around downtown D.C., I saw like one of those those trucks, those digital trucks with the ads on the side. And it had this big ad about how, you know, the numbers of casualties in Gaza, they're from the Gaza Health Ministry. The Gaza Health Ministry is run by Hamas. And therefore, those numbers are not accurate or are not believable. I'm wondering from your sense and from your reporting, is there any reason to question this count of, of nearly 20,000 people killed there? At the present moment, we don't see any reason to question this count. And the reason for that is it's not just the media using these figures. It is the State Department. It is the United Nations. Mm-hmm. The Israeli government itself says that the numbers are roughly accurate. The reason you hear questions about the numbers is because Gaza is run by Hamas, the group that Israel is at war with. And so the argument being made is that the numbers are politicized. That said, in this conflict, as in conflicts prior, we have found that the numbers are accurate as far as we can tell. And of course, that is not the only number that matters. Um, We're talking 50,000 people who have been wounded, almost 2 million people who have been forced to leave their homes in Gaza. And also, we know that some of these casualties include journalists and humanitarian aid workers who have also been killed. I mean, more than 130 UN personnel have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, which I believe is the largest number in any conflict in the UN's history. So what does that all tell you? A U.S. intelligence assessment released over the weekend found that of the 29,000 air-to-ground munitions that the IDF has fired into Gaza since October 7th, only 55 to 60 percent of them had been precision guided. Mm. If we put that another way, that means that almost half of the, the munitions that Israel has used have been unguided. That means that they are less precise than precision weapons. And let's remember, when we remember the death tolls from the battles against ISIS in Raqqa, in Mosul. Thousands of civilians died there, and that's when the Americans were using precision weapons. So think about what's happening when the decision is being taken to use ones which are less precise than that. I've heard the term used, dumb bombs, that that, that is what Israel is using in many of these cases. Um, I want to understand a little bit more about the the details here between a a precision bomb or a uh, quote-unquote dumb bomb or or unguided bomb. Like, how do those bombs work differently and what's the effect that one has that the other doesn't? Well, the distinction between the two is is, is that one has some sort of system internal to it, which, which helps you guide it towards a target, whereas the other one doesn't. 
it's that simple. Um, the Israeli Air Force apparently is dropping some of these quote-unquote dumb bombs from, from lower down. They, they call it dive bombing, which means that they say that they can be more accurate and they can almost make them precise by virtue of the, the tactic that they are using. But when you talk to arms control experts and civilian harm experts, they will say that, frankly, there isn't necessarily a huge difference at the end of the day. And given the number of people who are dying under what are described as quote-unquote precision weapons, it doesn't really make a difference to a Palestinian civilian whether it had something on its tail fin or not. Both types of weapons are killing Palestinian civilians in, in large numbers. And it's clearly having an effect when you look at the number of fatalities so far. Even President Biden has now criticized how Israel is waging this war and the fact that there is, as he's calling it, indiscriminate bombing. So tell me a little bit about how we're starting to see the U.S.'s stance on this conflict shift just a little bit. Well, I think the key word here, as you say, is just a little bit. The defense secretary was in Israel yesterday, and he was very, very clear that you know, the word he used was ironclad. As a major strategic partner for the United States, our bilateral relationship with Israel in particular is central to regional stability and security in the Middle East. During our meeting, I reaffirmed to Minister Gantz, our commitment to Israel is enduring and it is ironclad. However, because the death toll is as high as it is now, and there is growing concern within the administration and the American public, he was also walking a line where he was very clear that civilian casualties are not just a moral issue, but they're also a strategic issue. Democracies are stronger and more secure when we uphold the law of war. And I've, as I've said, protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral duty and a strategic imperative. And he really seemed to be framing this as, as a friend coming to say, listen, we have your back, but these numbers are too high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like they're walking a real tightrope here, both from what we're hearing from President Biden and also from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, as you said, that it's this uh, message of, you know, our support for Israel is still unwavering, but these numbers are really high and maybe it's not the best strategy to be killing so many Palestinians. It's just interesting to see them try to walk that line. Well, I think it's also a fine line that the administration is judging is is the right one. The administration's argument repeatedly has been that in public they will be very fulsome in their support for Israel. And that is something that in private allows them to deliver the tough messages, to say, listen, enough. But that said, when you look at how this is playing out on the ground, it's not clear that that strategy is working. The civilian casualties are certainly incredibly high. We don't know how many of those 20,000 people are civilians, but judging by the pictures from Gaza, many of them are young children, many of them are women. And so there are very real questions as to whether this tightrope is actually working. And I think 
a lot of people around the world and a lot of Americans look at those at those photos at these numbers and say that the US is not doing nearly enough to to step in here and to ask for Israel to to be more limited in how it's waging this war. I mean, we're saying like there's this shift in US policy here, but that's a pretty subtle shift and um I think a lot of people are saying what has taken so long and why isn't this more forceful? I think that's right and America has a number of of options available to it if it wants to exercise pressure on the Israeli government. Criticism is part of it, but we also have to remember that American weaponry has played a major part in this war. An awful lot of the munitions that Israel is using are American-made. And so there is a scenario where it would be possible for greater conditionality to be placed on them. However, despite this public tightrope walk and these messages about the need to limit civilian casualties, there certainly haven't been any indications that the Biden administration is looking at any conditionality on the weaponry that it's sending. And how much is the idea of disproportionality coming into play here. I mean, when you when you consider the the numbers of people who died in awful, tragic, horrific ways on October 7th, but also the number of people who have died um, in Gaza in awful, tragic, horrific ways since then. Well, the thing with proportionality is that it is very difficult to judge without knowing what exactly was in the plan of the military at the time that they executed a strike pull up the the definition here. You know, the principle of proportionality in international law seeks to limit damage caused by military operations by making sure that the means and methods are not disproportionate to the military advantage sought. So if we're looking at this in maybe moral terms, you may say that the proportion of civilians killed in any strike is is too high. But when you revert to the law and this is where the Israelis will point you to time and time again, they will say their strikes are legal under international law. And the question that we as reporters face is that it's almost impossible to judge the quote-unquote proportionality in a legal sense without knowing exactly the size of the military advantage and the target that was being struck at the time that any strike was, was called. After the break, I talk with Louisa about other developments in the Israel-Gaza war, the death of Israeli hostages, the treatment of Palestinian prisoners, and the prospect of another ceasefire. We'll be right back. There have also been other events in the past couple of weeks that seem like they've started to turn public opinion against this war or against how Israel is waging this war, um, or at least caught people's attention. Um, And I want to talk about the photos of Palestinian prisoners who were taken into Israeli custody. Can you describe those photos a little bit? These are the photos we saw from northern Gaza of scores of men in their underwear in the middle of the street. They had been told to strip. They were ready for questioning. And the IDF was was interrogating them under the assumption that some of them, potentially many of them, were Hamas operatives. Now, we've spoken to people who identified friends in the photographs. People said they were also 
journalists, they were civilians, they were people who had been trapped by the fighting. So mm. this was, to all intents and purposes, an incredibly humiliating set of imagery that was initially circulated as if to say, look, look how many Hamas fighters we found. But as the days wore on, a lot of questions circulated about really how many of them were. And I think a lot of Americans seeing these photos on their face, I mean, at least it reminded me of, of photos of Abu Ghraib in Iraq and and uh, photos showing abuse or torture of prisoners. Um, I, I'm curious, what has Israel said about these photos and what kind of effect have these photos had in terms of public opinion? A decision was taken after these photographs circulated that they would not be circulating photos like that after after this. And, you know, when I say that these people weren't necessarily fighters, it is also the case that under humanitarian conventions, even if someone is a prisoner, you are not meant to humiliate them. You are not meant to circulate photographs of them like this. And I think it's something that was seen among the Israeli public as much as anything else as being incredibly troubling and incredibly unpalatable. And of course, then there was the more recent news about three hostages who were killed by the Israeli military in Gaza. Can you explain a little bit about what happened there? Yes, Israeli forces in northern Gaza shot dead three uh, Israeli hostages, thinking apparently that they were Palestinian militants. The Israeli investigation has found that they emerged shouting um, in requests for safety in Hebrew. They were half naked. They were holding white flags of surrender. And it's this is something that has really caused a surge of anger in Israel. You know, mm. the military had been around the building where these people had been found for, for, for days. And more broadly, this is a story that has really shone a light on the potential tactics that we are seeing in northern Gaza, whether they are... Israeli hostages or Palestinian civilians, of which there are many in the area, if they're coming out with a white flag, it is illegal to target them in this manner. The thing that I've certainly heard people saying in recent days is the fact that they are hostages really is the only reason that, that we heard this story. We are not hearing the news of what happens to Palestinian civilians when they emerge with white flags, but this absolutely gut-wrenching story of what happened to these three men has shone, I suppose, a broader light on what does appear to be happening in a place where we have very little information now. You said that the reaction among Israelis has been very angry, you know, considering that these are three hostages that, in theory, could have been saved and brought back to Israel. So can you talk a little bit about what that has meant for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and whether this is causing a greater crisis of confidence in his leadership? I think it's absolutely creating a greater crisis of confidence in his leadership. The issue of the hostages is something that the families of the hostages have really forced onto the political agenda in a way that it wasn't immediately after October 7th. If we mm -hmm. cast our what do you minds mean by that? Well, if we cast our minds back, you, you'll remember that Netanyahu was was all out to destroy Hamas. And one of the lines that you repeatedly heard from Israeli officials was that they couldn't negotiate with Hamas because they didn't negotiate with terrorists. Now, two months on, we've seen humanitarian pauses in the fighting explicitly decided so that hostages could be released. And that's because these families have really 
bared their souls in public. They have lobbied, they have marched, they have traveled the world, and they have put their families on the agenda in a way that the politicians at first hadn't done. The problem is more than 100 of them have now been released through a hostage deal last month. But now the fighting has resumed. And of course, you have all these people still trapped in the middle of Gaza, some of them seemingly in incredibly poor health conditions. And when stories like this come out about the three hostages who were killed, it makes the families terrified for for what is is happening to their relatives. And they have said, you know, every time people see a picture of a bomb going off in Gaza, every time they see shelling, it is in the back of their minds. Is my relative under that? Hmm. That, that there are these questions now even inside of Israel of, is this bombing in in Gaza even good for us? Absolutely. And, and it, it is certainly the case that hostages who have been released from Gaza have said that they were held in tunnels sometimes, which are harder to get to from, from some of the, the weaponry used by, by Israel, but also that they were held above ground. They were held in apartment buildings. And so they may be in the very same buildings that are under this these weapons. You, you simply will not know until there is a final accounting, if there is a final accounting for what happened. So given all of these developments over the last couple of weeks and the fact that questions are getting louder and more urgent about what Israel is doing in Gaza and how they're doing it, um, what does that mean for the prospect of another ceasefire or a permanent end to this war? Well, the prospect of another ceasefire will really come down to what happens at the United Nations Security Council. And this is where things get a little complicated There have been growing calls at the UN Security Council for a ceasefire, for humanitarian pause, for for any version of words, which effectively will put some form of end to the fighting, be it a ceasefire or a permanent end. Mm. That said, the United States is one of a handful of countries at the UN Security Council, which has a veto over such a vote. And to date, it has continued to exercise its veto. And that is one of the main reasons why a formal ceasefire has not been called for. Hmm. And why is the U.S. vetoing a ceasefire? The word ceasefire has become incredibly contentious in American political discourse. The Israelis are particularly opposed to it because they say that any ceasefire at this moment is something that that will help Hamas. It will will hurt the military aims of Israel, which is to destroy Hamas. So if you stop the fighting, you allow them time to regroup. You allow them time to re-equip. And so thus far, America has, has stood by its Israeli allies. And although it's under growing pressure, there has not yet been a move by the United States at the Security Council to back what would be an end to the fighting and an end to the catastrophic civilian harm that we are seeing day by day. So if it seems like right now a ceasefire is not imminent, how are things going to proceed from here? And and what is Israel trying to achieve? Like, what is the thing that they will get done that at that point they will be like, okay, we're ready for this to be over and we can stop bombing Gaza and turning upside down the lives of the people who live there? Well, I think that's the very difficult question, because when we go back to the start of the war, this was a war to to end Hamas rule in Gaza, to root and branch, uproot the militants from the territory. And it was probably always an impossible aim. But 
what we have seen weeks on is that the number of militants apparently killed has, has been very small compared to the number of civilians. There are few indications that Hamas operations are significantly hampered. If you look back to last month, they were able to coordinate a large-scale hostage handover. So all this time later, there has not been a clear difference that certainly that we have seen in, in Hamas operations. But how much longer can this continue? This becomes the question. So it seems that we're now looking at potentially a phased end to the war. The Americans are putting increasing pressure on the Israelis to to change the strategy, to transition from this second phase, which is this very bloody phase, it's the ground invasion, to maybe something where they have staging posts from which they can go in, do more targeted raids, target high-value senior leadership, and then depart. But although American officials are saying they would really like to see an end to this phase of the war by the end of the year, there are as yet no indications that that, that will happen. And what does this all mean for Gazans who are just trying to understand when there could be a reprieve to all this? Nothing good. As long as fighting continues, the situation they will face will be catastrophic. And, and I'm sorry, I keep using the same word. We've been writing about this war for, for two months now, and I'm really running out of, of ways to describe things that we hear. Mm. It is some of the worst I have certainly ever heard in the course of my reporting. And I'm, I'm running out of synonyms and it's catastrophic and it will continue to be catastrophic until the guns fall silent. But even then, when the bombs stop, that doesn't mean the suffering ends. Most people have lost their homes. They don't have anywhere to go back to. And so what will follow a ceasefire, what will follow an end to this war, it won't get much better. Louisa, thank you so much for explaining all this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Louisa Loveluck is an international correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Ted Muldoon. Thank you to Monica Campbell, Rennie Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, and Jesse Messner-Hage. If you are a Washington Post subscriber, you should absolutely be checking out your personal newsprint. That is this thing that's kind of like your year in the Washington Post wrapped. It tells you what topic did you read about over the year, how much time, how many pages did you read in the Washington Post, who's your top author. It gives you this insight into yourself and what you're interested in. So if you want to do this personal, one-of-a-kind newsprint, go to WashingtonPost.com newsprint. I'm Martine Powers, and we'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.